0: Alright, tonight we are in Revelation chapter 16. I hope to get done with this chapter tonight. Um, We have been seeing the uh, good things of Revelation chapter 15, and now we're going to go back to kind of the gloom and doom of chapter 16, 17, and 18, where we're going to see the bold judgments being poured out on the earth now at this point with these bold judgments that this is going to be the end there is no more after this you're going to see this is kind of a picture of what's going to go on from boils to the sea turning to blood to the fresh waters turning into blood to the sun scorching people, to Satan's kingdom having been thrown into darkness, to the Euphrates River being dried up, to hailstones of a hundred pounds each falling on people. It is a lot of judgment that is going on here. And in chapter 17 and 18, we're going to have some holes filled into the gaps. But we're going to get the basic rundown of what's going on in chapter 16. In chapter 17 and 18, back up a little bit. So we might call this, this is the trailers. The trailer. When you watch a movie, you're getting the highlights. That's chapter 16. And the bowls are going to be a picture of the wrath of God being poured out. Not only a picture of, but I think truly the wrath of God being poured out. And what we see is, if you think back on the, the sacrifices that were made in the altars, uh, in the temple, in the tabernacle, especially on the Day of Judgment, the Day of Atonement, what would end up happening is the animal was killed and the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. I think that that is a picture of judgment. Sometimes we have a tendency to look at, oh, these sacrifices, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, and oh, it's nice. But we have to realize that what Jesus went through for us was the wrath of God. That he so loved us that he was willing to, to submit himself to that. And sin is ugly. It is awful. And so Christ had overcome these things, but I think that's the picture of the blood being poured out at the altar is this is judgment blood shed and we're going to see a lot of bloodshed going on here and so this is going to be a destruction of the earth the destruction of Satan's kingdom babylon both spiritual and physical i think we're going to see that in chapter 17 and 18 as well almost like a a spiritual babylon and a commercial babylon where all the economics and stuff goes on. So let's get started here in verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Being poured out at the bottom of the temple, remember, or at the bottom of the altar. Remember, the temple is a picture of what's in heaven, right? If what's in heaven and you're pouring it out underneath the altar, it's almost like a picture of pouring it out on the earth. And that's what's happening here. Whose voice are we hearing? Well, there can only be one voice here. This has to be the voice of God. The reason I say that is in chapter 15, if you look back, we saw that the temple was filled with the glory of God. And no one but God was in the temple. Nobody could enter the temple until the bold judgments take place and are finished. So the only person in the temple right now is God. And here is a voice coming from the temple. So this is God's voice. It's his judgment. He's the one we read in Romans that he is going to judge the living and the dead. He is the lion and the lamb. And so God has given all judgment to the son, it says there in Romans. So he has every right to be the one speaking this judgment And bringing it forth here in chapter 16. Now some just interesting historical side note kind of stuff here. There was a, in 500 BC, a Greek philosopher, Empedocles. And he came up with this idea that there were four, uh, I don't know, I can't think of the word. But basically you've got water, wind, earth, and fire. Alright, and that everything is made up of that. Aristotle came around later and he added a fifth one and said that there was this one called ether. But this is kind of the Greek philosophy of, of what everything is made up of. And we're going to see a judgment on every aspect of that. Except for maybe some say ether, however, you're going to even see the spiritual kingdom. The spiritual world is going to receive the wrath And some say ether is a picture of a a heavenly kind of thing. But nonetheless, that doesn't matter all that much. Outside of we're going to see judgment on all of creation here. We see that this is not, you know, something new like, oh, I never saw that coming. Because Psalms says in chapter 79, verse 6, that pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. People have been crying out for this. The saints have cried out for it. If you remember back in Revelation 5, the saints were saying, How long, O Lord, until you judge, avenge our blood? Well, it's about to happen right now. What for centuries, millennials, uh, that people have been crying out for is about to take place. In Zephaniah 3, verse 8, it says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. God is a jealous God. He is jealous for you, and he will not share his glory with another. And yet we tend to do that all the time. We tend to share the glory of God with man-made things. Maybe even you might say man-made festivals. We we try to give the glory of God to us, to things that we invent in our own minds. Satan has for you know all of time been trying to steal the glory of God, get us to, to focus on ourselves, to have this desire of wisdom as he did with Eve. You know, eat. You'll be like God, having all of this thing. You can share God's glory. Well, he'll have none of that. This in Zephaniah, must be talking about this day. Notice it says to gather or assemble the nations. Well, we're going to see that when the Euphrates River dries up, one of the points or purposes of that is so that the nations can come and gather against Israel against the believers. And so all of this that is talking about pouring out my wrath. Well, he's pouring out these bowls. This seems to be clearly talking about the bowl judgments here in Zephaniah. Verse 2 goes on and it says, So the first, the first angel went out, He poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. This word sore literally is like a pussy, blistering wound. It is gross, it is disgusting, it is vile, it is unclean. We'll talk about that in a moment. Well, the first four bowl judgments seem very similar to the first four trumpet judgments if you look back on those. Some people even say it's the same thing, just another view of the same thing. However, I do not believe that's the case. I believe that these are completely separate events. Not only because of the timeline that we've been talking about, There definitely is chronological order to these things. But also, we saw with the first four trumpets, when you compare them, in the first four trumpets, there's a third of the earth that is affected, then a third of the sea, a third of the fresh waters, and a third of the heavens. Now, we're seeing all. All of the sun, all of the heavens, all of the stars, all of the earth is being affected. And right here, it's all of the people that are not on God's side. They can hide in the mountains. They can, they can go and you know, bury themselves in a basement. It doesn't matter where they go. They are going to be affected by this. You cannot hide from God. So the other thing that I want you to see as we go through these is the similarity to the plagues of Egypt, the curses that were placed upon them. During the Exodus we see all ten plagues really are a judgment against the gods of Egypt. Okay, They worship the frogs, frogs come up on the land, they worship the flies, they worship the cow. the, you know, the hail will kill the cows, they worship the sun, it's dark and everything is a judgment against their gods. Likewise here, everything that is going going to take place is a judgment against Satan and those who follow him. There's a spiritual judgment that is taking place here. It's more than just the physical. And we saw that one of those plagues was these painful sores that came upon the magicians and the people of Israel. So it says that even the magicians couldn't even come and present themselves before Pharaoh, who is a, a picture of the Antichrist. Which makes you wonder here, if even the beast, the Antichrist, that they won't even be able to appear before, you know, the, the dragon. I, I don't know. But that's the picture that we're seeing. There is a clear connection to the judgments of, that are taking place in Exodus, just before going you know, being freed that we see here in Revelation. Now, looking back in chapter 14, these people were given warning to stay away from the beast in his image, so this is not a surprise as well. It said this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 14, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. So they were warned, God is just that way. There is nobody who is going to suffer the the punishment of hell And say, I didn't know. Nobody. God has given us His Word. He's given us creation. He has given us a testimony all throughout. We even saw before there was an angel that flies through the air, you know, giving the gospel. I guarantee you there's nobody going to hell who didn't know better. He has put His law in our hearts, giving us a conscience to know better. But people sear it. To ignore it. But we often hear that argument. But well, what if there's this person that way out in the African jungles has never heard of God and let me tell you I don't know how God does it all but there is nobody going to hell because they didn't know better. There is no such thing as an atheist. Even Romans in chapter 1 it says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. you got to know truth to suppress the truth. And that's what Romans tells us. No such thing as an atheist. There are people who ignore it. I can see the same thing with our lives today in maybe other ways, but we know that God is telling us to do something, but we just kind of sweep it under the rug and maybe just suppress it a little bit so that I don't have to follow it. God has told us, honor the Sabbath day, but we can justify and say, well, you know, but now under the new covenant, and it's okay, and there's no condemnation in it, which, which is true. No blessing in it then either, is there? But you see, we have ways of suppressing things so that we don't have to face them. And I'm sure every one of us can probably come up with some, something that's in our lives, in our hearts, that we're hanging on to right now, that we're not going to be able to say, I didn't know God. I didn't know. Right? Well, the pain inflicted upon the bodies of these people is an appropriate way to punish one who has been doing nothing but trying to satisfy the flesh throughout their earthly life. If that's all we do, and really that's what drives so much sin, is feed the flesh, feed the flesh. I want this, let's give it to it. And now that flesh will see no rest. So it's very appropriate. It's kind of like those things, you know, one who kills by the sword, by the sword he must die. One who lives by the flesh, by his flesh he must suffer, you might say. And that's what's going on here. It's also a little interesting, I don't know what to make of it too much, I don't want to make too much of it even, is the fact that it says a sore here, it's singular. I don't know if this is a sore and it spreads, or what it is, but a singular sore. But I do know that in the Old Testament, when you had a sore like this, it is what made you unclean. In some cases it was called this leprosy. And that word that's used in leprosy in the Old Testament is a word of uncleanliness. And I think that there is a picture in the Old Testament as you really study this out that leprosy was God's way of putting a mark on you in the Old Testament there. Saying, you are unclean. You didn't get that unless it seemed there was some sort of sin that you were hanging on to in your life. And you would go and make yourself clean. You had to show yourself to the priest, all of these kind of things. But there was a a spiritual aspect to leprosy in Scripture that we do see. Now, by no means am I saying that anytime anybody suffers, it's because of sin in their life, blah, blah, blah. What, What I'm saying is when you study it out, as how it's described in Leviticus, there is a connection to an outward stamping so that your sins were visible. It was visible that you were unclean and you needed to be taken out of the camp and you needed to be brought back in to the family. Well, these marks here are certainly making these people unclean, both inside and outside some think that these sores could be nuclear fallout and that what's going on here in these judgments is a nuclear war. Waters turning to blood. I, I don't know. Honestly I don't care. I personally think we're dealing with more something supernatural than the natural here. But it's just what some people say. All I know is that whatever it is it's only upon the ungodly. The godly are protected. None of this. This is the wrath of God. And remember Thessalonians says that it is not appointed for us to be under wrath. So this is not for the, uh, the believer. It's only for the unbeliever here. Brian, is this why like in Job when he's got the sores that break out on him that his wife says curse God and die? Hmm. Never made that connection, but that's an interesting one. Um, I think it very well could be very symbolic of that because we're going to see that that's what these people are going to do is do nothing but curse God and wish they could die. And Job's wife is a picture of the devil there. I think that's why the devil left her there because he took everything away from him except his wife. The one person who should be a helpmeet became a torment to him and did nothing to encourage him in his faith. So, maybe, good connection. Verse 3 says, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Well, there goes your, you know, your property value along the oceans. Um, can you imagine the stench? Every living thing in the sea dies. Now, keep in mind, at the trumpet judgments, only one-third of the sea was affected. But now every bit of it is. Again, it's unclean. Blood was unclean. And so, just as the painful sores from plague number two made you unclean, now the oceans are unclean. It's preparing the earth for destruction. It's going to need a cleansing. We have the echo of the waters turning to blood in the Exodus here as well, back in chapter 7 of Exodus. Um, so anyway, it moves on and it says, then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers. So we've got painful sores, we've got the seas, and now we've got the rivers, the fresh waters. And the springs of water, and they became blood. You see, in Egypt, they could go down and dig into the ground around to get fresh water because the river had turned to blood. They couldn't get water to drink, so they would go and dig where it had filtered out through the sand and they could get fresh water. Now, the streams, the springs, you can't find water. What a picture of hell when it talks about just, you know, Lazarus. It just the rich man dip let him dip his finger in water and just come we're getting a picture of pain of your body awful smell thirst quite the opposite of what christians are going to experience right the, the living water your hunger because the food is all going to be destroyed relies on what comes from the ocean yep Yeah, because ultimately it will all be affected. And yeah, so there will be nothing to find rest for your flesh. An ultimate destruction here. Again, is there a supernatural aspect just like what hell will be? In hell, you live. But you can't partake of any of that. It is eternal torment. I, I don't know. We know that this is not hell yet. But what a foretaste. So, it's interesting too that this angel, it says, and I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was. Some translations say, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. This angel of the waters is interesting. Because the Jews have always believed that there was an angel over waters. And it's kind of interesting here that in the New Testament, of which they did not have, is kind of almost giving some credibility to that belief. They see waters as an abyss as well. It was always a not a good thing. You, you never saw a lot of Jewish water skiers. Okay, um, It was always just A symbol of evil and darkness, the waters are. Um, It's kind of interesting here when it says that the one who is and who was. Like I said, some translations say and who is to be. However, the New King James um, has who is to be. It is not in the ESV, and it is not in most of the others. The King James reading of including that in there, as well as the New King James, comes from the 1598 edition of the Textus Receptus. And the critics of this say that the Greek even there should read... um, because it doesn't appear in the other manuscripts, only there, that it should read like the Holy One or that Holy One or and Holy One so that it would read one who is, who was, the Holy One, you know, comma, the Holy One. Either way, it doesn't really change a lot. I do like the fact that most manuscripts don't have it because you're no longer waiting for the one who is to come. He's come. It's done. And there's a comfort in that. It's kind of like faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Because faith is done. Faith is gone. When we get to heaven, there is no faith. It has been fulfilled. There is no hope. Hope is there. Who hopes for what he already has? Paul says in Romans. But love, love will continue Forever and ever and ever. It never goes away in heaven. And I think this is the kind of the same kind of concept. The one who is and who was, there's no more need to say who is to come. And so I do like the fact that it is missing in most of the translations and most of the manuscripts, really. So, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Wow, blood to drink. I mean, its I don't think it's an accident. We're seeing more and more of that going on in our society. A picture of the devil, and the devil tries to make this look as if it's a good thing, when in fact this is judgment, unclean, and abomination, and there will be no joy in that. Verse 5 also shows that this angel acknowledges God's righteous and fair judgment. I think that's important because God is just in His judgments. You know, this idea of God being unjust because He sends people to hell or would bring punishment upon people is so ridiculous. Ray Comfort is always good about pointing that out by bringing it to our natural realm and saying, if your mother got raped, brutally murdered and they catch the rapist and murderer, and you go before the judge, and you're waiting to see this judge send this awful murderer, rapist to prison, and the judge says, hey, I'm a loving judge, so I forgive you. You're free to go. You'd be angry, because that judge was unjust, unloving. He was awful. I mean, he should be you know, uh, kicked off should no longer be allowed to be a judge. There isn't anybody who would think that that judge was good. And yet that's what we try to make God out to be. And so for people who look at this and say, well, oh, that's your loving God? Yes, that is loving. This is very just. And the people that are, are being affected by this deserve that punishment. Like I said, it's not that they didn't know any better. Revelation 7 says, God even promised earlier here that the living waters would be part of our reward when he said this, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The lamb, the lamb will lead them to springs of living water. So again, that contrast of these guys have to drink blood, you have no fresh water, but we have springs of living water. Revelation 11:17 17 here as well. The same acknowledgment of of Christ's reign beginning earlier, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. You'll see that there. I left that footnote mark in there, because even in chapter 11 there, it is not in most manuscripts. And in chapter 11, when we see the seventh trumpet blowing, is when Christ comes. The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our God. The time to reward the saints has come, it says there in chapter 11. And so that same connection of maybe why that's not supposed to be in here the who is to be. Verse 7 goes on and it says, I heard another from the altar saying, another voice, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Even so, true and righteous. Look at what Isaiah 49, verse 26 says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The oppressors, our oppressors, they are going to eat their own flesh. They're going to be drunk on their own blood. But he says, then all mankind is going to know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am just. Revelation 19, jumping ahead, we see, "Hallelujah! salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They shed blood, and blood they shall have. Just like today, all these people, you want to drink blood, and blood you shall have. You you desire this world, then I shall give you this world. I'll let you, you know, the the desires of your own heart. God gave them over to shameful lusts. In Romans 1, when they reject God as creator, he gives them over to their own desires. And they find out their own desires are not what they thought they'd be. Isn't that so true of this world, how Satan lies to us so many times that we think that, oh, a new car is going to bring me satisfaction. I am going to be happy when I get a new car. The desires of the flesh. And then never quite seems to bring the, the joy that it you know, was all cracked up to be. You know, oh, if my wife would just stop nagging at me I, and I could find a different wife, then then I would have a happy life. Never seems to work out for people like that. As a matter of fact, when somebody gets divorced, usually there's another one in the future. And then a third, sometimes a fourth. Right? Sad, sad world that we're in, but again, the devil is constantly lying to us, thinking that the desires of our heart are going to bring us satisfaction. and they don't. There is only one thing that fills the void. Jesus. That's it. But that's the same kind of thing going on here with these people. They desire these things, and God's saying, "Here it is. You don't want you, you hated me? I'm going to back off. I'm not going to be there for you at all. How do you like it? That's what a big part of hell, I believe, is going to be. No love, no comfort, no joy, no peace, no truth. Imagine a world without all of those things. That's awful. Verse 8, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the power was, given, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. I just remember thinking, I mean, my goodness, how, how much can they take before they finally realize, okay, 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 you know, uncle, I was wrong. Never will happen. It will never happen. There will be no repentance. When these bold judgments start pouring out, there's no evangelizing left. Okay? Evangelism is done at that point, for sure. There is a point, when God hardens your heart, I think that's ultimately the sin against the Holy Spirit. We often hear that, the one unforgivable sin. What is it? Well, it's a sin against the Holy Spirit. What's that? Well, the Holy Spirit is what even gives you the ability to believe on Him. In the Exodus, going back to the same type of thing, like you're saying, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then at the end it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You see, Pharaoh was, no, I don't want this, I don't believe this, I don't believe... God was still there. Moses was still saying, listen, listen, listen. Listen. But then, once God hardened his heart, it was over. And that is, I think, the picture that we are seeing here. When our heart is hardened by God, it is too late. It doesn't matter. And so, just like we're seeing in our world today, it doesn't matter how much reason, logic you apply to an argument, it does not convince delusion. It's impossible to argue with delusional. They can't see it. That's the way this is going to be. They will not be able to believe. Because the Holy Spirit will not be there. I mean, this is also typical of sinful man here. You know, as long as things are going well in our lives, God's okay, right? you know i love this christianity stuff you know i mean we can have a few bumps in the road but god is good but all of a sudden when things go bad and everything goes wrong most often the tendency is to say why god and be angry at him isn't it so despite the fact that the holy spirit you know that they can't believe anymore it does seem almost natural where we see that in our own lives. That it's when everything is bad and we don't get a break. At first we can, I mean at first it's like yeah okay this will pass, but then you get hit after hit after hit after hit and you get tired and your body gets weak and then you start blaming and getting mad at God. Right? I don't know if that's the kind of thing going on here or not but it does seem pretty natural. To blame God for your troubles. We see that's what the Israelites did in their 40 years of desert wandering all the time too. Right? They were, you know, we were better off back in Egypt, at least back there, you know, we had leeks and onions and all of those things, and now we've got this miserable manna. Well, again, that's because it was all about the flesh, all about the physical, not willing to suffer for Christ. Well, again, just making that comparison with the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgment, a third of the, earth, uh, the sun was darkened. Here, it scorches people. This is not the same thing. Um, we read here in Revelation 2.21, when we were talking about the churches, they said, He certainly has given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. We see that today. God has been giving us time to repent. He's been giving many people you know time to repent, but they're unwilling. There's a time coming when you won't have time to repent anymore. You may not have another day. And whether we're evangelizing, and I I, I say that to people, maybe this day hasn't happened. Maybe we've got five years before this happens. Maybe you've got a hundred years before this happens. Whatever it is, you may not have five years. You may not even have a week left because you could die of a heart attack tonight. So, some things to think about. Again, those who have to have an answer for everything think, oh, the sun, scorching heat, might be a supernova. The scientists have been talking about this for years. Supernovas, you know, the sun is going to expand before it blows up. You know, It's the cycle of evolution. Okay? Again, I think nonsense. I think this is spiritual. I think there will be physical things going on, but it's not what the scientists think. That's my opinion. Going back to this not being able to repent thing as well. Uh, my cousin uh, was an RN and for a while there which part of her job was to sit and pronounce people dead. So when someone would die at the hospital she had to sit there for I don't know if it was fifteen minutes or thirty minutes and she had to listen for a heartbeat and if there was no heartbeat then she could pronounce it a death. But she had to wait that long just to make sure. There was a man from the prison who had cancer who had been in there a number of times before, a very evil man. Well, this was the last time he was coming to the hospital, and he dies. And she was sitting there, waiting for the heartbeat, you know, listening, or not waiting for the heartbeat, but assuming there would be no heartbeat. And after about five minutes, this man sat up in the bed. She said, just about gave me a heart attack. (laughs) Sat up in the bed, and was Cursing. He wasn't wasting time with the S word, the F word, or any other words that you can imagine. He was cursing God. And that was it. Cursing and cursing and cursing, just as evil as you can imagine. And he dropped down again, and in another 30 seconds or so, he started cursing God again, and then it was over, and he never came back. Even the doctor who had come in said, that was an evil man. But I always think of that because I think that is what awaits the unbeliever. Even those who have not gotten to this point yet. We're not here. The bold judgments have not poured out. For an unbeliever who dies today, I hope that this speaks to them because this is the same kind of thing they're going to experience anyway. This is for the people that are on earth to experience this. But there will be eternal torment and they will not say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, oh, please, please, please. You know, that's what that guy should have probably been doing. He, he had an extra 30 seconds or whatever to repent, but no. Instead, I'm angry, I'm going to curse God blame Him rather than take accountability. And I think for kids listening, accountability is huge. If you can't learn to take accountability now with your own mom and dad, don't think that you're going to learn to take accountability with your Heavenly Father. Accountability, learn that now to say you're sorry. Learn that now to say I was wrong. Anyway, verse ten. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Again, they will not, cannot repent. And on this this fifth bowl, then, it says, Satan's kingdom becomes full of darkness. And they begin to gnaw their teeth or their tongues. That's just an interesting phrase because I don't know if you've ever seen an animal that is in great pain like that. Animals typically don't experience a lot of pain compared to a human being. But there are times when you will see an animal that is so scared and distraught that it's doing that very thing. And it will gnaw at its own tongue It's such an awful, wicked thing to see. And this is what humans are doing. It's not just yelling and cursing. It's gnawing your tongue. It's not even being able to control your faculties at all. This is the kind of awful thing this is because of pain. Isaiah 8 warns in verses 19 and following... If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I think this is the kind of thing Isaiah is talking about. Yet in John 8, it says when Jesus spoke to his people, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Sometimes we can read this in John and just picture it as a metaphor. Oh, walking in the light, I see the truth. There is an aspect of that that is true. But I also think there is a literal aspect of this, that you will always walk in light. Rather than being cast into utter darkness. Darkness that can be felt, if you recall, in the plagues. Again, going back, we're seeing every one of these connecting us to the plagues. There was a darkness that could be felt in all the land of Egypt, but not in the land of Goshen. Not where the Israelites were. Only in the land of Egypt. A picture of that separation of good and evil that is seen here. Now, by the way, there is a change in theme here. Remember as we've been talking about Revelation, how we have the seven, 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 seven. Each one of these sevens can be divided up with four and three. There's a change in theme, just like with the, the seals. You had horses, and then it changed to Satan's kingdom. Then with the trumpets, you had a third, a third, a third, a third, and then Satan's kingdom. Now, we've had all these bold judgments, and now there's a change in theme... From the earth to now Satan's kingdom. So that pattern continues to hold as we're going through here. And it is the entire kingdom thrown into darkness. It sure sounds a lot like hell. Even though I don't think this is hell, it sure seems to be a description of it. Weeping and gnashing of teeth as we saw in Matthew chapter Uh, 8. It's a number of times uh, described as that. The word used for darkness here in the Hebrew, or in the Greek rather, it's hosek. And hosek is not the word for like just turning off the lights. It is a word of like blindness. It's, It's more than just being dark. It's not understanding. It's a blindness of the mind. Do you remember when Lot... Uh, the people were all around his home there and the angels struck them with blindness. It's that same kind of thing. That word blindness wasn't just like, I can't see, everything's dark. It was a blindness of the mind and confusion. And so these people not only are, I think, physically in the dark, but mentally in the dark as well. So, kind of an interesting word that's used there. And again, I think that's why, in part, why they can't repent. They won't repent because they can't. So, moving on to verse 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up, so that the ways of the kings from the east might be prepared. Yeah. It's uh, The Euphrates River is all talking, it's, it's drying up, it's drying up. And we all make a big deal out of that, which I think is a sign. However, note that there is going to be a specific thing that's going to cause this at this point, And at a certain order. So even though it's drying up now, that's just a foreshadow, not the real thing. Um, In verse 14, jumping ahead, you're going to see the kings of the whole world will be gathered uh, because of this. But for now, only those from the east are mentioned here. So, um, it's kind of interesting we hear about the one world government. One world government is definitely going to happen, but it seems like this one world government doesn't have a one world leader. There are many leaders Many kings that are all going to be under an authority of, well, the dragon and the beast. So a number of kings, this does not go against a one world government. East is also usually a divine direction because symbolically we see as well that that's where Jesus is supposed to come from the east. Many scripture verses talk about that. That's why in Jerusalem the golden gate is closed up because he's supposed to go through the eastern gate. And the Muslims sealed it up so the Messiah can't go in. They put a cemetery, dead bodies so that, you know, to defile it, all of that. And now we see these kings coming from the east. Satan mimics everything. Even the coming of Christ, they try to mimic in, in coming in the same direction. Historically, as well, kind of another shadow when Cyrus conquered Babylon, you know, from Daniel's dreams and all of those kind of things, historically, he stopped at the waters of the Euphrates. And it's kind of a, I think, a picture of foreshadowing of the Antichrist coming in, that type of thing. Um, when Babylon is going to be destroyed because it's here, the Euphrates River that's drying up, allowing them to come and what's going to get destroyed? Babylon. So just that symbol again. Um, Isaiah 11 says, The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep His hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. So... It's not that there is no water at all, but it's very shallow. Seven streams are going to be divided up. Verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to battle of the great day of, the God, of God Almighty. So, Find it interesting, Leviticus 11.10 tells us that frogs are unclean. Uh, The imagery here shows the defilement and the negative goal of these spirits, these demons. So, clearly all in a negative sense here. Even in the Exodus, what happened? There were frogs that came up into the homes, through their windows, everything. A picture of demonic influences. So, Here we see demon-possessed men controlled by Satan himself, I think, with the main goal of destroying the saints, going against God's people, going up against Zion. Why are they going up against Zion? Well, because that's where you're at. That's where the godly people are at. That seems to be where God is at. And they are going up against God. How are they doing it? Through deception, through miracles. We saw in chapter 13, verse 13, spiritual warfare. The spirits are going to go out and deceive the nations. Remember Matthew 24, he said that in the end times, there would be miracles, signs, and wonders to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So, I think they're going to use those type of things as deception. And they're going to march out against Jerusalem and the holy people. And we're going to see that in chapter 19. We see in 1 Timothy 4, 1, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I don't think that's just what we're reading here in Revelation 16. I think that's also what we're living right now. I think there is such a demonic influence in in our society that is getting people to believe that it's okay to, to kill babies, to murder them. In and out of the womb, that it's okay to dress like a woman when the Bible says it's an abomination, that uh, deceiving spirits to make people think that, you know, this gender confusion, there shouldn't be any confusion. It's as common sense and scientific as logic can be, but there's a deceiving spirit out there. So it's going on even today. Matthew 24, 24 here. False Christ and false prophets will appear, perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. We have some other scriptures that talk about this gathering together. I'm just going to run through them real quickly. Joel 3, verse 2 and 11. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. A little side note here, remember uh, we talked about, I think in chapter 14, the Valley of Jehoshaphat and the blood running down through the Jezreel Valley all the way down to Petra and past. Uh, It was like 1400 stadia or whatever, up to the horse's bridle, and we we, we talked about that. Well, some people will say the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley. We don't really know where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. It's not mentioned in the Bible in the Old Testament like that. I don't think it's the Kidron Valley because the Kidron Valley is right next to Jerusalem. Here, I think it's in that Jezreel Valley is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's my opinion. Only in the 4th century AD did the Valley of Jehoshaphat come to to connect to the Kidron Valley right next to Jerusalem. Like literally right out the gates. So I, I think the Valley of Jehoshaphat is more in the Jezreel Valley not you know the valley of Armageddon not by Jerusalem there anyway it says there I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance my people Israel for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land come quickly all you nations from every side and assemble there so all the nations are gathering against and guess what they have divided up God's land isn't that interesting that that is what the United Nations has tried to do Divide up the land of Israel. Constantly. Zephaniah 3, 8-9 I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them. Sounds very much like Revelation 16. All my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. There's going to be a unity I don't think at this time you're going to have Baptist, Methodists, Lutherans, Catholics, Lutherans, whatever other ones I missed, CMA, you know, all that. You're not going to have. There's going to be unity. And God is going to bring them together under truth. And we go to Zion that the word will go out from Zion, teach us his ways so that we may walk in them. He's going to clear up all of our misunderstandings and we will be united. And we're going to all be, ah, yes, now I see. That's going to be a great day. That's what I love about Sukkot. It's a picture of that. Zechariah 14:2 and 4. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north, half moving south. Like I said, where are you? In Jerusalem. Where is God? In Jerusalem. Mount of Olives. At that time, at the time of the end, of the kings of the south will engage him in battle, it says in Daniel 11, verse 40 and following. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and great fleets of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. That would be Jerusalem. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Amnon will be delivered from his hand. That's kind of along the Jordan River, just on the other side of the Jordan. Revelation 16, verse 15, picking up now, it says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. So, here in chapter 16, the Euphrates River is now dried up. Why? To allow the kings to gather together for this great Armageddon battle. That's what we're talking about in all these verses. Revelation 3.18, jumping way back, he said, I counsel counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Okay? Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. You see, we're to, it isn't just a well, blessed is he who called on the name of the Lord. But blessed is he who keeps his garments, who watches. Because if you don't keep your garment, you're going to walk naked. You're going to be like those ten virgins that, yeah, you know, we've got oil. We're waiting. We're, we're one of them. But then when the time comes, it's like, wait a minute. Oh, 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 I, have, I don't have enough oil. But you have to be watchful and always keep your oil full. Are you reading your Bible on a daily basis? Are you praying? Are you, are you making decisions, wise choices every day to, to make your time useful and not to put things into your, your home or allow things into your home? Are you, like Adam, being placed in your garden to protect it, to keep these things from entering your home? Are you being watchful? Luke twelve thirty seven. it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. So, this here in verse 15 is the third of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed are, or blessed is he who watches. We saw, and I'm not going to go through them all, but I've got them listed here on the bottom. Chapter 1, verse 3 was the first one. Then chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 19, verse 9. Chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 22, verse 7. And chapter 22, verse 14 are the other six. Seven Beatitudes mentioned. And this is the final one. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. I don't think I need to go over... All of the verses, you know, again, when we talk about him coming like a thief, that is only for the ungodly. Behold, I am coming as a thief. When he says that here, this is saying like, this is what it was like for the ungodly that I just poured this wrath out on. But for you, he does not come like a thief. So keep that in mind as well. Um, That's what he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, But to you, brothers... Keep your guard so that this day should not surprise you. And so what we're seeing is those people who are keeping their garments, he's not coming like a thief. But to those who are walking in shame and nakedness, yes, you're going to be surprised. You were too busy following the world. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 is where that one is. I think I said 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a weird placement of this, and that is because, if you recall in our patterns that we've seen throughout the entire book of Revelation, between the 6th and the 7th, there's always a commercial break. Between the 6th trumpet and the 7th trumpet, it just, boom, you go way off track and you start talking about something else. And then the 7th one picks up. Here is between the 6th and the 7th bowl judgment. So it is our commercial break between the 6th and the 7th. And so it doesn't really tie into those six bowls being poured out because it's commercial. By the way, all of you reading this book of Revelation, this is why you keep your garments. So it does break the, the, the flow. And that's why. But that same pattern, is it's the commercial break between them. We have no idea how long the bowl judgments are. I tend to think this is going to be rather quick but we don't know. Uh, What does quick mean? What I would like it to be, you know, a day, you know, each day, I doubt it. I think it's going to be longer than that. I don't know. Because what we're seeing is you've got enough time for the Euphrates to dry up. He could do that quickly, but it's to gather the armies to come up against them. So, how long is that going to take? Is that going to be a month to gather everybody, for them to go out, deceive the nations, and do... I don't know. But I kind of think that it... uh, Some people have tried to connect things with the plagues of of, uh, Egypt. Each one, sometimes they say, was about a week apart and whatnot. I don't... I haven't found anything that convinces me that we can say how long any of these are. So, I wish I had... All right. now the commercial breaks over. Very short one in verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake had not occurred since men were on the earth. Sounds a little bit like Joel 3, verse 16. The Lord will roar from Zion, thunder from Jerusalem, the earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for His people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. So, again, we're protected. The Lord is our refuge. He's our stronghold. They're coming up against us. They're marching up against Jerusalem, up against God. But it's going to be to no avail. It is done. Much like on the cross when Jesus says, it is finished. He is announcing this. And when He does, just like on the cross... There was thunder and lightning and an earthquake. Here, when he says it is finished, the same thing. There is going to be an earthquake and everything is going to be removed. It says, now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So, I don't understand. This great city seems to be Jerusalem. Revelation 17, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Is kind of interesting. Okay. Is that Babylon there? We see in Revelation 11:8, 8, the great city was Jerusalem, which was spiritually called Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom. So, the great city, most commentators are going to say is Jerusalem. And then you got Jerusalem and Babylon. We know that the great city, if you recall the prophets in the past, he took his sword, he took the hair, Ezekiel I think was it, and he cuts it into a third, a third to here, a third to there, a third to here. It's just kind of a weird placement of that. We might have to talk more about this next week because I am out of time. I only had two slides left to finish this out, but maybe I'll jump back to this next week, we'll see. And give you a little bit more, but um, a little fogginess here for me on what this great city is either Jerusalem or just Babylon, but um, or both could be. So, in chapter 18, verse 5, we're going to see why the city is destroyed because her sins have piled up to the heavens and so on. God has remembered her her crimes, her sin. Verse 20. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. The great hail from heaven fell upon men, and each hailstone weighed a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Once more, just like what we see in the plagues of Egypt, now hundred-pound hailstones are coming down. All the islands flee away, even Hawaii. Uh, It's all gone. Okay, I, I don't... Uh, can't imagine what's going on here, but this is the full wrath of God falling upon the earth. Um, almost seems like an eighth temple but it's included in the seventh. Yes, this is what's all going on in the seventh is all of this happening now. So, um, Revelation 6.14 kind of predicted this. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That was back in chapter six, verse 14, if I have that right. Ezekiel 13:13 13, 13, in my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. Many times in the Old Testament we saw God using hail as judgment. Ezekiel 38:22, I'll execute judgment upon her or upon him with the plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulphur on him and his troops and on the many nations with him. We remember Sodom and Gomorrah. And Peter tells us they serve as an example of those who are going to suffer the punishment of eternal judgment at the end. And what did he do? Hail, brimstone, fire. So the same theme. Last verse here, Isaiah 24, verses 17 and following. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in a snare. The floodgates of the heavens are open. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like, the hunt in the wind, like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of the rebellion that it falls, never to rise again. In that day the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. So, above and below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on the Mount, Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. This is Isaiah's picture of what we're reading about here in Revelation 16. And so, that, uh, that concludes the bold judgments And here it is in a picture form. But uh, next time, next week, we're going to show you a little bit of 70 AD fulfillment of those from the perspective that this has all happened already in 70 AD. I'm going to give you that perspective of it. I don't agree that that is the case, but I'll give you that perspective. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about... um, perhaps the Feast of uh, Trumpet Day of Atonement and things like that, which I also think this is a picture of to kind of put the, the biblical festival understanding into this as well. So, all right, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for just your spirit and for being merciful to us to allow us to see, to see our sins, to see that we need to repent, To see your mercy and grace that there is a way out that we do not have to carry this burden ourselves as a matter of fact we could not carry this burden ourselves Lord seeing all this judgment all these hard just events taking place just makes me weep for those that I know that do not know you good people we might say that aren't good but appear to be good by the flesh and by their actions, but we know in their hearts that they are not good. Lord, let them see that. Reveal to them that no one is good. Reveal that they are in need of a Savior. May you open their eyes to hear the truth when we share it, that the gospel would go forth from us, that you would provide opportunities and open doors to to speak this truth. As it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And how can they hear unless someone is sent? Lord, send us. Prepare the way that it might be straight. Not that we might have a life of easy street, but that you prepare a way for us to go and accomplish what you have put us here for. We pray this in the name of Yeshua, the name that saves Amen.